Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody. This is New Books in Psychology, and I'm your host, Eugenio Duarte in New York. Today, we'll be talking to James Pennebaker and Joshua Smythe about their book entitled Opening Up by Writing It Down, How Expressive Writing Improves Health and Eases Emotional Pain. It's in its third edition, published by Guilford Press in 2016. James Pennebaker, the originator of expressive writing, is Regent's Centennial Professor of Psychology at University of Texas at Austin and a longtime researcher and writer on the links between expressive writing and physical and mental health. Joshua Smythe is Professor of Biobehavioral Health and of Medicine at Pennsylvania State University and also an active researcher into expressive writing and other means for promoting health and well-being. And they're here to talk to us about the latest insights and findings on expressive writing. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. Thank you for having us. So you just released the book in its third edition. Tell us about how you came to write the first edition of the book and why you continue updating it. Well, the first edition I wrote in 1989, and it came out in 1990. And it was uh, about four years after I had uh, published the first article on expressive writing. And a number of papers were coming out. It was a exciting time. It was also kind of a, it was a different approach than we had typically seen in psychology at the time. And then uh, seven years later, I felt as though it needed a, a, a more up-to-date version was needed because in the, the, those seven years, there had been dozens of studies, one very important one that had been published by, by Josh Smythe showing that this expressive writing had power beyond just improving college students' health, but moving to real people with real diseases. And it never occurred to me that this book would be reprinted. And then starting 10 years after, I st- people, the publisher and others started pressing me to revise it, and I just... I, my research topic, I moved into a, a different field at the time. I didn't have time, but there was increasing pressure. And there, you know, initially, by the time the first edition came out, there was probably eight or ten studies. By the second edition, there were probably 60 studies. And by the time we published this and were writing it, there were probably 500 studies. And the landscape had changed really radically. And I agreed with the publisher that another version needed to be done. But I was far enough away from the the basic writing. I needed somebody who really knew the expressive writing world. And I've known Josh for most of his career. Uh, and he was a, a, a natural guy. And so I felt really blessed to be able to, to collaborate with him on this version. Yeah, and it, it, uh, it's, of course, an exciting opportunity to, to bring a, a sort of popular and influential book 
up to speed, I think we were seduced by the apparent simplicity of the task. We, we approached it thinking it would be, oh, a little update, a little tweak here and there, a nip and tuck, and she'll be 20 years younger. And uh, two years of work later, uh, considerably more than either of us anticipated, we, we really ended up dramatically changing, rewriting, as well as updating the book so that I think it fundamentally feels like a different creature than the prior two editions. Before we go further, can you tell us what is expressive writing? Well, the original idea of expressive writing was that if you ask people to write about an upsetting experience for a limited amount of time, let's say four days, 15 minutes a day, that it has the ability to help people kind of stand back and evaluate major issues in their lives. It helps to find helps them to find meaning, gives them some structure, and can serve as a life course correction. And what we found, or what I found in my early studies, was that having college, regular college students, and by a flip of a coin, they were asked to either write about the most traumatic experience of their lives or about a, a superficial topic for four days, 15 or 20 minutes a day. They ended up going to the student health center in the following months at about half the rate as people in our controlled conditions. And what was so striking about this was they didn't have to write about traumatic experience. It could be practically any emotional topic that when given the opportunity, people are almost eager to write about things that are really bothering them. And afterwards, they sleep better. They they tend to show improvements in health. They tend to be happier. And it's a really interesting phenomenon that on the surface, it sounds almost magical. It's not. But it's a... It, gives us an example of how putting things into words can make a difference in our lives. I got to tell you, when I started reading the book, it kind of caught me off guard how you start off by talking about the effect of keeping secrets and of confessing. Can you tell us a bit about why you were interested in this and how this led you into investigating expressive writing? Well, the history of my research life has always been that I've backed into topics. Uh, I was, to be quite honest, I was never interested in clinical psychology. I was never interested in, uh, in writing. Uh, but I was doing work on, I'd always been interested in mind-body problems. And I think Josh and I share that interest. And I ended up, uh, I was doing work on physical symptoms, why people report physical symptoms. What's the relationship between biological activity and our perception of biological activity? And at the time, this was in uh, the early 80s, I was writing a book, and I was kind of sewing the book up. And at the end, I thought, you know, it would be interesting to give a large number of people a questionnaire about uh, physical symptoms, but also just ask them about their lives and see if there's anything, any personality dimensions or that might be related to symptom reporting. And I was working with a group of students and another faculty uh, member, brought, uh, Billy Berrios. And every afternoon we'd get together and we were coming up with interesting questions to ask people. So one of the, one of the students said, oh, I've got an idea. How about, uh, have you ever had a traumatic sexual experience prior to the age of 17? And, and I thought, yeah, that's a great idea. So we stuck it on the questionnaire and then discovered that when we passed the questionnaire out, that that one question was related to every health problem 
we asked about. And I later uh, found the same thing with a much larger sample. And it got me wondering, what is it about a traumatic sexual experience? And it turned out it was its secrecy, that if a person's had a traumatic sexual experience, they tend to keep it secret. And it turns out people having any kind of trauma that they kept secret was associated with, with a variety of health problems. And that was really the beginning. I started wondering, well, if keeping a secret is so bad, what if we brought people in the laboratory and encouraged them to divulge this secret? And having them talk about it was too much work. Uh, and, and from a research perspective, too complicated. So we ended up having them write. And that, that was kind of the birth of expressive writing. Can you say a little bit more about the mind-body connection? Because you talk about that at the beginning of the book. And it's really interesting how you cite all these cases in which you observed how physical health problems can sometimes be traced back to psychological causes or precipitants. Can, can you share some particular observations that really stood out to you and made you want to pursue this further? Well, first of all, I'd encourage your audience to stand back and think of the last times that they were quite sick. And then go back again to those times and ask, have, have them figure out what was going on in their lives at their, that time. And more times than not, those illnesses coincided with major events going on in their life. Now, now we've known this idea for, for a long time. And in my early days, as around the same time I was doing this, I was doing little experiments that the students would come in and I became very interested if they had certain kind of psychological issues. And my, one of the first cases was somebody who, uh, I won't go into the details, but had developed test anxiety out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. And he didn't know where it came from and no, no treatment seemed to work. And so I, because I was doing a lot of work on psychophysiology, I hooked him up measuring heart rate. And I would ask him various questions about, uh, about what was going on in his life. And one question provoked a huge biological response, which was, uh, tell me about your, was your parents' divorce a big deal? And he said, no. And when he said that, there was this huge biological response. And I, afterwards, I said, you know, when I brought that up, there was this big biological response. Do you have any idea what that means? And he said, no, not really. And I said, well, tell me about it. And what happened was his parents broke up. He, he discovered it. His parents had, had forgotten to tell him that they had separated when he had gone to college. He'd gone home, went to his house that he grew up in, and it was vacant. And he talked to the next door neighbor who said, oh, yeah, your parents uh, separated. Haven't you talked to them? So he contacts them, and they admitted that they didn't, hadn't known what to tell him, and he was an only child. And, uh, you know, a few days later, he came back to school. He had a big test, and he failed it. And he thought that he had developed test anxiety. And it turns out that it was probably much more closely related to his parents' divorce, which he in some way never talked about, kept, kept it out of his uh, mind. And, and I became fascinated by this. And after, after doing this with him a few times, of magically his test anxiety went away. And to me, this is the artist things. Putting secrets into words somehow changes the way they're probably represented in our minds. Now, maybe one of you can 
help me understand what what is unique to expressive writing? Is it the same as keeping a diary or a journal? Is it is it different from say venting on paper? Although the the superficial aspects of of expressive writing feel like they should be the same as keeping a diary, that there has been a fair bit of work suggesting it's not quite as simple as that. Um, for one thing, we know that people keep diaries for a range of reasons, and quite likely different kinds of people are more or less likely to keep diaries. Sort of a simple way to think about this is, uh, if you look at people who take vitamins, they tend to be a little more sick than people who don't take vitamins. Now, we would probably not rush to conclude that vitamins are making those people sick, but rather that people who are ill or, or worried about becoming ill uh, are more likely to take vitamins. And so when you look at people who keep diaries, um, there's a lot of sort of questions that go into it. There are likely some people who keep diaries in ways that are similar to how we think about using expressive writing, but, but most are not. Most tend to either um, use them as daily logs and sort of activity trackers and relationship trackers and things like that. There does appear to be something unique in the nature and importance of language uh, and sort of narrative coherence and structure and story building in writing. Um, we have a lot of research suggesting that if we think about things, which of course we're, we're good at, we have big powerful brains, uh, but often thinking about troubling events uh, doesn't lead us out of the forest and, and in many cases can lead us further in. Uh, Susan Nolan Hoeksema is a very famous psychologist who studied this for decades and that thinking about particularly overwhelming problems tends to make them worse. And a big portion of, of the work of both Jamie and myself has been to explore how language tends to help structure, orient, uh, and uh, sort of catalyze this process in ways that perhaps other uh, emotional experiences, more pure cathartic events or other creative expressive avenues uh, may not be quite as effective or efficient at, at generating. So since so much of this has grown out of your research interests and, and it seems like organically evolved as the research has gone along, maybe you could tell us what it is that you tell people when they come into your lab and you instruct them to engage in some expressive writing? What, what, are, what are the exact instructions that you give them so that we can understand what, what exactly the task includes? Well, there's not a single task. And that's what is interesting about this because, you know, every lab, every therapist does it a little bit differently. I think the one thing that it shares, and if, if uh, the listeners are interested in trying it, here's what I'd recommend. For the next four days, what I'd like to have you do is to write about your deepest thoughts and feelings about an issue that's really personal to you, something that you're, you're maybe thinking about too much, dreaming about too much, worrying about too much. In your writing for each day, I want you to really let go and explore your very deepest emotions and thoughts about it. And you might tie this this, this experience into other issues. How's it related to your family? How's it related to your background? How's it related to relationships, to work, to who you would like to be in the future, who you've been in the past, or who you are now? You can write about the same experience all four days, or you can write about something different each day. That's entirely up to you. But whatever you choose, once you begin writing, I want you to really 
write continuously. Don't worry about spelling or grammar or sentence structure. This writing is for you and for you alone. And also, if you find yourself writing and you get too upset or distressed, well, stop writing or write about something else. In other words, you're in control of your own emotions and moods about this. Now, there are some uh, potential downsides. You might feel a little bit uh, sad or dis distressed afterwards. And many people report feeling sad the same way they do if they go to a sad movie. But usually they feel better in the next hour or two. But the point is, is that this is an exercise for you and for you alone. Don't plan to write this and then post it on a blog or, or, or mail it to a friend because you're angry at them. This should be for just you. And what I often recommend is plan on, on tearing it up when they're finished. Because very often you are people are disclosing really personal things that if they got in the wrong hands could be dangerous. So so that so that's the, the general uh, method that we use. And sometimes people will have them write for three days or four days or five days or two days. Sometimes I'll have them write for 20 minutes, 10 minutes. Even one study recently had people write for just two minutes and it was beneficial. We, um, we often will frame this broadly around, you know, relying on people's expertise of their own experiences. You know, we live in social relationships. We live in clinical contexts where we might um, visit a, a doctor and they're giving us advice and uh, hopefully very good advice in many cases or, or, or our friends and uh, loved ones are giving us advice and sort of often people lose sight of their own individual experiential expertise. And, and it's really, I think, important to remind people that that's an authentic experience. And um, writing... Um, when you know others are going to, or talking or sharing in any other ways, uh, where you know there's an audience, even if you think you want that audience, um, again, our work has, has looked at this and, and, and people edit. Uh, they, they edit what they say or write in ways to fit the expectations or to try to control the responses of the, of the audience. And um, there are certainly cases where that's very smart uh, to do. Uh, you know, what you say to your boss, um, etc. But in this case, um, what, what we tend to advocate uh, that's unique or, or at least inherent to this approach is, is to keep it private, to keep it in that sort of safe, confidential space so that you, you stay true to that authentic experience that you have. And we have what we hope to be a, a sort of a, a useful chapter towards the end of our book that really walks people through, here are some ways to try it, here are some guidelines and parameters to self-explore whether and how to use this expressive writing technique for yourself. I'm glad that you emphasize the point about writing as though nobody will read it because one thing that I have found in my own experience professionally and personally, personally is that sometimes it's the knowledge that your thoughts will not be heard or seen by anyone else. That's the very thing that makes those thoughts possible in the first place. And, and so by making sure people know that they will not be read, it, it protects creativity and it kind of create, protects the emergent properties of thinking. Um, I also want to make sure I understand two, what I pick up as two important points in your instructions to your participants. Number one, it it sounds like you're asking 
them to reflect a little bit on their unconscious, on, on things that have been sort of lingering or showing up in their dreams, sort of unfinished business. And also in asking them to relate it to their family or to other aspects of their lives, it sort of sounds like you're asking them to start doing some work. You're asking them to start trying to make links, trying to really digest the experience rather than just sort of spit it out, just sort of um, purge it out and, and be done with it. Am I understanding that correctly? I, yeah. I think that I think that's absolutely correct. And when we started this work, uh, Jamie started this work, and and the early researchers and and theoreticians in this area, we we did start with the idea that it was the disinhibition of of hiding things that was helpful. And by that logic, um, this idea of relational links and insight and structure are not necessarily important. And some of Jamie's early work was, was uh, incredibly elegant, uh, perhaps um, more than we even realized at the time, by decoupling the sort of raw venting of emotional states on their own from these more cognitive reflective elements. And since then, we've had a number of studies on this theme. And to oversimplify a, a complex story a bit, what does seem to be important is exactly that aspect you mentioned. It's the making sense of, it's the integration of, it's the sort of framework and latticework of understanding without either uh, getting buried in a sort of tsunami of emotional experience or rehashing repetitively the same story, the same emotional experiences. So what do you say to people who are listening right now and thinking to themselves, oh, you know what, I'm not a good writer. Or they're thinking, I don't really like this expressing yourself thing. If anything, it makes me more upset and not less. How do you, what do you say to them? I say, you know, get, get over it. Uh, <laughs> the, here, here's the issue. Your, your writing is for yourself. We've had people who can't spell a word, who can't, who are horrible, horrible writers. But it, it doesn't matter because this is for you. It's not for anybody else. And it can, and you can even just scribble, and it would probably be beneficial. So that's the first issue. If your view is, oh, I don't want to write about this because it'll just make me think about it. Well, here's the issue. You're already thinking about it. You're already dreaming and obsessing about it. Get over it. Just go ahead and and get on the horse and write. And if it's overwhelming, stop writing. The, the costs are so minimal and the payoffs are so potentially great. There's very, very little downside here. I, I want to talk about some of the payoffs as you've discovered in your work because your book is chock full of studies that you review that really speak to the benefits of expressive writing for lots of different situations or conditions or diseases. Um, were there any particular studies either that you conducted or, or that you reviewed or your own clinical experiences where you saw the benefit of expressive writing and, and, and any that particularly stood out to you? Early on when, when we were doing this work, uh, as, as Jamie has noted, most of the initial work 
were on generally well-functioning, healthy people. And the idea of uh, engaging in tasks that make generally high-functioning people tell us that they're slightly more high-functioning uh, is an interesting starting point, but I don't think either of us were really satisfied with that. And in very different ways, our next step for each of us was to say, where does the rubber hit the road? Where does this actually matter? And so for me, um, that was to say, what about people who are dealing with not a sequela of a particular emotional or traumatic upheaval, but are dealing with chronic physical illness? We know that takes a burden um, physiologically, biologically, behaviorally, psychologically, and whatever sort of resources broadly defined they have to manage their life are, are taxed, they're challenged. So what if we tested expressive writing, not necessarily about their illness or, or about something specific, but as a general approach, uh, and we ran a, a, a moderately sized a randomized controlled trial, so the same sort of standards that were applied to drug trials, and we tested expressive writing in this way where we integrated emotional and cognitive aspects of their past stressful experiences versus bringing people in and having them also do writing uh, in the same way, but about emotionally neutral topics. And we found really quite astonishingly that uh, four months after the conclusion of three writing episodes, these uh, patients with chronic physical illness, and in that first study that happened to be rheumatoid arthritis, uh, and asthma, uh, they had one or the other, uh, those patients demonstrated clinically verifiable improvements in their disease states. So that meant that for arthritis patients, they had less pain, less stiffness, less swelling in their primary joints. For asthma patients, their objectively verified lung function had been improved. And so to us, that was the kind of step. And uh, one early study that Jamie did, I'd encourage him to tell us a little bit more about, um, involved people who had been laid off from, from their jobs, which I, I think, again, is another place that just demonstrates the sort of profound potential impact on people's lives. Yeah, so it's not just physical health that writing can benefit. And it, that, as Josh was mentioning, we did a project with a group of engineers who'd been laid off from their jobs unexpectedly. And we were able to, we worked with an outplacement firm and we had a third of the, there was about 65 people in the study, a third of the people, we had them write about their deepest thoughts and feelings about getting laid off. A second group wrote about time management and time management is a big deal in the, in the uh, uh, layoff field. And then there's another group that didn't write. And what we did was track how they, how successful they were in getting jobs in the months afterwards. And what was fascinating about this is getting laid off from a job is humiliating. These were people who were in their 50s by and large. They had the same job their entire life. Many of them were embarrassed to tell any of their friends. They didn't want to talk about it even with their spouses. And so when we had this group write about their deepest thoughts and feelings about getting laid off, they wrote some about getting laid off, but then they also talk, wrote about other issues in their lives, problems with their marriage, problems with their kids, problems with their neighbors, problems with their lives in general. And what we discovered was that all three groups afterwards had the same number of interviews because the company, they, this outplacement company, kept all sorts of records. 
The only difference was that people in the experimental group were much, much more likely to get jobs in the other group. So even three months after the study, we, we were going through the preliminary results and about a third of the people, 30% of the people in the experimental group had found jobs compared with 5% of all the other people in the other conditions. And the effects were so big that we sent an email out to the, actually, this was pre-email, we sent out memos out to the other engineers saying that we discovered that people in this one condition that, was at, that were asked to write about their deepest thoughts and emotions about getting laid off were much more likely to get jobs. So we're stopping the study, and this coming Monday, we are inviting you to come in and participate. And we got millions of papers and everything ready for them. Not one person showed up. And when we contact them, they all said, oh, well, that's ridiculous. You know, that kind of study, this, that's not real science. And what I loved about this was no self-respecting engineer would have ever come to be in a study writing about their emotions. Whereas we suckered them in by telling them this was a project on writing in transition. And they thought they would learn how to write a resume. And once they were in front of you or in front of me, I'd say, here's what you're going to be doing, and they go, okay. And it reminds me a little bit about this phenomenon when my wife says, we need to talk about our relationship. To me, there is no words that terrifies me more. And, you know, I will do everything I can to avoid it. But once we do it, it's great. Everything's wonderful. I'm glad we did it. But there's, I think for certain people – the thought of actually objectively confronting an emotional experience is really daunting. So then is expressive writing one of those things that we need to trick ourselves into doing or need to be somehow coaxed or seduced into doing? I wouldn't. Yes. In some cases, yes. But then there's this other side. And, you know, I, it's true for me as well. I don't, you know, I've got a pretty good life, and I don't have to deal with trauma much. But, you know, every few months, there's something nasty or horrible goes on in my life. And I will often avoid dealing with it. But then I'll sometimes go to bed and I can't sleep, or I wake up in the middle of the night, and then I'll just say, okay, and I'll just get up and start writing about it. And that is, you know... I've learned that it works, so it's no longer one of these things that I actively avoid, but I'll put it off as long as I can. I, I think another important aspect of that is um, when people have had experiences dealing with very emotionally difficult or traumatic uh, experiences, and particularly when those have been uh, interpersonal contexts in play, they, they may have had um, really unpleasant outcomes as a result. They, they might have found that process overwhelming, uh, negative, etc. And I think often people will assume that is what writing is going to feel like. And in fact, I don't think it is. Uh, one, because as, as we have discussed, writing is often conducted uh, in a more solitary, private, confidential way. So you remove largely remove the potential for negative social uh, consequences. But also, when you are putting 
your experiences into language and into words, and particularly if you're writing them longhand on a piece of paper, that actually slows you down and forces you not to immediately jump into catastrophizing. My life is ending. My world is over. You have to say, okay, this is a thing and I'm going to write a sentence. And that's a little tiny bit. And in fact, um, maybe that little bit is more tolerable and then the next little bit is tolerable. And, and so we, we have this sort of piecemeal, you know, that sort of don't bite off more than you can chew. Writing um, in this fashion sort of helps us cut our emotional experiences into smaller bites that, that are a bit more manageable. So let's, let's say that we've convinced our listeners at this point that expressing our troublesome thoughts and feelings in writing has major benefits. And I'm, allow me to play devil's advocate for a moment, but what would you say to them if they wonder, well, but why not just go to therapy? Why writing? I'd say, sure, go to therapy. If you want to spend the money, that's great. And I, I would, the beauty of this is it's free. Try it out. If it doesn't work, go to therapy. I think therapy is a great idea. It's not one or the other. And by the way, many therapists, bad news if you don't want to do this, uh, many therapists encourage people to write for homework. I, I think that that's absolutely correct. And just so that your listeners are clear um, that Jamie and I don't sort of espouse this, you know, we have chapters on how this helps your academics, how it helps your job performance, how it helps your physical health, how it helps your emotional and psychological well-being. Uh, we do not believe this to be a simple panacea that everyone should do, and they will become deified entities striding high amongst the mere mortals uh, in their daily lives. You know, this is a, um, it's like exercise, right? We know exercise is good for us. We all find it a little bit troublesome to fit into our routines, and, and it can be difficult to do. It has benefits. That doesn't mean that if I exercise, I should never get any other help in my life with anything else. It's these are all complementary aspects of, of self-care uh, or sort of self-maintenance or self-enhancement uh, that, that this is just one small piece of. But you've definitely hit on something special, and, and it seems to me that your book does a great job of describing what it, what it is that's unique about expressive writing compared to talking to a friend or to a therapist, not because it's superior, but because it's different. And it, and it provides the person with the unique um, medium for expressing and then organizing his or her thoughts. I, I want to go back to the studies for a moment because we talked about how writing can help um, people who have lost their jobs, can help people who are dealing with chronic illness. What about trauma? What about folks who have experienced a really traumatic event? Can expressive writing help? You know, th this is one of the most interesting problems. There is no thing that can be beneficial to traumas, but one thing I want to emphasize, uh, the timing of writing is really important. If you've had a major, major trauma in the last few days and you are raw, and you don't feel like you're ready for writing, you're probably not ready for writing. I think writing works best when you find yourself thinking about something too much. And too much is kind of a vague term, but if you've had a major trauma in the last few days and you're thinking about it all the time, 
you're not thinking about it too much. You're, uh, pretty normal to me. But if you're thinking about it all the time, a year from now, that's too much. And writing can be beneficial. Also, if your friends won't listen to you anymore, that's a sign that writing can be beneficial. So if you're going through a divorce and you've noticed that all your friends are, are hiding from you when you come down the street, that's a sign you're talking too much to them. And this is a good time for you to think about writing. So the evidence is, is writing about a traumatic experience can be beneficial. But let me go back to what Josh was saying. It's not a panacea. It doesn't always work. If you find that you write for three or four days and you don't feel any better, writing, it's not working. Go out jogging. Go, you know, go to a bar. Go to see a therapist uh, or, or exercise. There, there also is some work very specifically on individuals who are suffering um, persistent negative consequences of traumatic experiences and, and you know there's there's more subtleties involved in this but let's refer to it as PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder uh, one challenge of course are these are people who are are really seriously struggling and there have been now half a dozen high quality and another half dozen or dozen studies of, of more uneven quality uh, in this field and what I think is striking is there's almost no evidence that expressive writing with people, even with um, suggestive or clinically verified PTSD, that it does any harm. So, And I think that's an important first step because you may very reasonably worry that you're going to make people worse, and, and it just does not appear to be the case. Um, there is some evidence that it could be helpful for some people. Uh, even some people who have been struggling with PTSD for fairly long periods of time. Uh, where the, the sort of boundaries and limits are on that, we're still exploring, uh, both Jamie and I and, and many other researchers. So I wouldn't, uh, as as Jamie suggested, I wouldn't um, throw it out and not consider it. I'd try it, and if it's helpful, that's wonderful. Um, and if it's not helpful and you need additional help, um, that is perfectly fine as well, and, and there are many other therapeutic avenues available to people with PTSD. I'm, I'm wondering what you think about serial writing versus one-time writing, because many of the studies you cited involved people coming into a lab and spending um, some time writing in one occasion, but some of what you write about involves people taking time, sort of developing a habit of writing. Have you found either through your research or your clinical experience that there's a unique benefit to making it a habit, a, a ritual to write on some kind of regular basis? Well, one thing that, that I think is important here is that what uh, is good for one individual may not be good for others. And so there's this, there's this uh, allure of saying this is good or, or that is good. And I think it really has to be tailored to the unique needs and, and features and personality and all of that of an individual. Uh, I, I tend to think about that issue as a sort of a Goldilocks issue. Uh, if you remember the old Goldilocks tale, it was not too hot, not too cold, but just right. And I think in this case, you need to do enough writing, but not too much. Um, and so once you get to diminishing returns, you know, so maybe some people after one session, they've got all the insight and, and progress they're going to get. Other people, it may take 30. 
sessions. And if it takes 30 sessions, I had darn well better have a regularized routine to, to accomplish that. Um, but similarly, once I've gotten insight, if I'm continuing to write about the same event, um, it's not clear that that continues to be helpful. And it may even be uh, unhelpful in the sense of I may decide this is boring. I better start embellishing it and changing my story in weird and fantastical ways. Or it may promote some sort of narcissistic self-reflective style or something that, that isn't helpful. So it, it becomes a really personal decision, I think, about finding that optimal amount and structure where you can achieve benefit in your writing. Josh, can you think of any studies that show that diary writing is beneficial? I am unaware of any studies that have found that. See, and there's, that's the interesting issue. Um, I've always felt writing was particularly good as kind of a life course correction so that every now and then we need to stand back and ask ourselves, what the hell are we doing? Uh, and this is where writing is really beneficial. I always fear that with writing too much, uh, in, in addition to the, the narcissistic strategy that, that Josh was talking about, it starts to sound a lot like rumination. One of the, the cardinal symptoms of depression is ruminating about the same thing. And people who write a lot you know, over and over and over again really are just in the same, they're in the same rabbit hole. I had it uh, several years ago. Um, a friend of mine was going through a divorce and she said, asked about writing and I told her about it and I didn't see her again for another year. And I, she came by and she says, you know, Jamie, your writing stuff's not for, isn't worth anything. What it is worthless. I've been doing it every day for the last year and I'm not any better. And I remember thinking, my God, you know, you're not supposed to write for the whole year. <laughs> you, you know, three or four times is all you really need to see if, if it's working. And, uh, you know, ever since then, in, in this book and other papers, I always make it clear if you don't find it beneficial after a certain amount of time, for, it, it's probably really, truly not working for you. Well, if you don't mind, I, I think I might have an answer to some of that critique if, if I can come to your defense, because I thought if, if I couldn't do this interview without trying out one of your exercises for myself. And so I did that. And I think, I, I don't know what other people's experiences have been, but my experience was that the most important part of your instructions to me seemed to be the part where you ask people to write their deepest thoughts and feelings, not just their thoughts and feelings. And I paid special attention to that instruction when I did the exercise as a sort of invitation to you know, keep going deeper and deeper as I went along and to, to whenever I was writing something to, to keep going and see what was behind it. And I got to tell you, knowing that I was going to do this exercise, at first I was resistant. I was really kind of putting it off and thinking, do I, do I really need to do this in order to conduct this interview? But I thought, no, I, I really need to. And so once I started it, I wrote a little bit about my resistance, then realized that that was a form of sort of avoiding delving into the topic that I had picked ahead of time to write about. And I had set a timer for four minutes, and then when the timer sounded, I was shocked. I couldn't believe it had been four minutes, and I suddenly wasn't ready to stop, and I wanted to keep going, and I did keep going. And then I noticed, now that I was in it, 
a kind of emotional swelling. I, I felt kind of vulnerable, but I still wanted to continue. And, and at some point I stopped only because I had to get back to work. Um, is this kind of sequence typical? You know, everybody has their own, their own sequence, their own story. And by the way, Josh and I both were noting how healthy you look today. <laughs> it's clearly working. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, you know, this is what's so interesting about it. So we we get very, very different types of stories depending on the person. So uh, your experience is, is not uncommon. And I don't know if you did this for on, on several days. But what I have always found interesting is if if it's a study, we have people write for five days. The fifth day, they say, this is so boring. I'm so sick of writing. If we have them write for four days, it's the fourth day that they're sick of writing. Three days, the third day, they're sick of writing. It's almost as though they that people kind of naturally see where their end is, and they uh, adjust their story and what they need to, to, to deal with by the end of the story. I do also think that a common feature how it expresses itself varies. But when you ask people who have not tried this, they are often viewing the uh, emotional experience of, of the writing to be minimal. They say, well, I think about this or I write every day and I, it won't have a, have a strong impact on me. And when people do it, they often have this sense of loss of time. They often find that they are far more powerfully engaged than they anticipated. And I think, um, you know, I'm really happy to hear that you tried it because I think trying it once changes your perspective of, you know, not that we maybe understand this any better, but boy, there really is something going on there. Uh, it elicits just far more emotional engagement and powerful emotional experience than I think most people anticipate. I want to touch on mindfulness meditation because it's getting a lot of attention these days. And it, I must say, it's something I've gotten into myself in the past year and found immensely useful in ways that therapy or talking to friends just can't mimic. Some of the basic principles of meditation, like stillness, focused attention, openness to all that comes to mind, they sound a lot like the principles in your book. Is there overlap between expressive writing and mindfulness meditation? It's a really interesting question. And, you know, certainly we both have examined mindfulness and we have colleagues who study it well. I think um, at its core, mindfulness is um, attempting to be open to but largely non-responsive emotionally or cognitively or behaviorally, but primarily emotionally. Uh, when when you are faced with some stimulus, and that could be a, a stimulus in your environment, or it could be the symbolic representation of a past event, a trauma or or a challenge. And so, in some sense, if the idea is to say it, it shares featural characteristics, in that I become less upset when these things approach me, uh, whether volitionally or not, um, I think there are some similarity. What I think is distinct is that. Uh, expressive writing works on the proactive side. It sort of it changes our representation of the events over time, such that they simply do not elicit uh, the same emotional 
responses in the future. So it is not that we have entrained uh, a calmness, a serenity that dampens those responses. It actually is removing the impetus that I, I feel to respond. And, and that, in some sense, leads you to the same outcome. But I think we would view them as operating through different mechanisms. It sort of reminds me of the distinction you made, I think, when talking about uh, kids in school, the difference you draw between being confronted by information and confronting information. And if I'm hearing you right, we can think of mindfulness as a way of dealing with situations where we are being confronted by information, whereas expressive writing is more of an opportunity to actively be the one confronting the information, engaging it, and thereby um, reducing its, its power over us by allowing us to sort of make sense of it, order it. Exactly. I think that that really hits the nail on the head. And, and both are valuable strategies. Uh, you know, again, this is not an either or. Um, but, but I think it is. It's that taking control of and sort of proactively addressing and changing the way those events uh, shape you and, and perhaps lessen their, their hold over you. I'm wondering what you think about social media, because now with things like Facebook and WordPress, any regular person can write and publicize their most intimate thoughts if they want to. So I'm thinking, you know, when people write these long status messages messages on Facebook or when they write blogs, is that considered expressive writing? You know, it's it's interesting. When, as this medium started to grow, my absolute fervent theoretical view was this cannot be as healthy as writing by for yourself but then there's been a, a couple of studies by a group in israel where they actually have people write and so it's public or not public and it turns out writing publicly works just as well as writing privately so you know who knows uh and like you i'm sure like many people I'm sometimes stunned by the things people will put on their Facebook posts, their public Facebook posts. It's, uh, it's breathtaking. But I think in many cases it can be beneficial because, interestingly, they are being honest about their feelings and at the same time they're alerting their social network to the, the situation that they're in. One uh, emerging feature of how people engage with social media use that is very consistent with what we see in the expressive writing literature is the, the sort of making sense uh, focused inward and sort of scaffolding experiences and, and, and sort of the honest uh, synthesis of these cognitions and emotions, which can be done publicly or privately. Uh, but there is also very clearly some social media use that is outwardly focused and that is an attempt to elicit uh, behaviors or responses or perceptions uh, of others about you, and there, there's fairly robust evidence that the latter. So when I'm when I'm engaging in these things to try to influence other people, or particularly when I'm doing it because I'm worried about what other people think about me or how they're treating me, uh, that is actually related to worse outcomes. And so I think the punchline again is it depends on how it's being used. And there are constructive ways to use it, and there are less constructive or maybe even maladaptive ways to use all of these vehicles. They're all tools, and it's really about what we're doing with the tools. 
Well, gentlemen, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, can you tell us what you're working on now? Um, I am working on, I'm always working on dozens of things. So since the expressive writing work, I started to get heavily into the world of language. So I've been doing a great deal of work on how the words we use in everyday life reflect who we are, which was, by the way, influenced completely by the expressive writing work. So I have a computer program that analyzes language, and this is taking me off into the world of business and espionage and relationships and just about everything. And I, I am now, uh, I, I was able to, to also get this to the language work to look more at the nature of education, which has led me down yet another path that I'm now overseeing a, a large initiative at the University of Texas to transform the future of undergraduate education. And in parts of this are using online methods where people are able to write and get feedback and things like that. So it, it's all tied together in some, I'm sure, cosmic way. My work uh, still very broadly focuses on mind-body issues. And at its core, my interests have always been how our thoughts, feelings, and perceptions of our world, our environment, shape our uh, health outcomes, our physiological states. And, and expressive writing you know, was one of the prisms where that process could be influenced. And what we're doing now is to really look at how the same kinds of processes, you know, our thoughts, our feelings, our expressive behaviors, our interpersonal uh, relationships play out in real time and in real space. And so we use uh, new tools like leveraging uh, apps on people's smartphones and, and their social media use to try to sort of track people's dynamic experiences and behaviors as they really go about their, their lives out there in the field, free range humans, we call this, you know, not bringing them into our clinics and our offices. And then we're designing ways to utilize that information to develop smart interventions that give the right kind of feedback or intervention to a person tailored to not only who they are in general, but what they actually need at that specific moment of time, space and behavior. And we call these uh, sort of just-in-time or just-in-time adaptive interventions. And uh, expressive writing is one tool that we use to provide those kinds of interventions. Wow, those sound like exciting projects. Again, um, the book is called Opening Up by Writing It Down, How Expressive Writing Improves Health and Eases Emotional Pain, now in its third edition. Gentlemen, thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. That was my interview with James Pennebaker and Joshua Smythe. You've been listening to New Books in Psychology with Eugenio Duarte in New York. I hope you have a great week.